0: This is the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast with Tracy Doherty Shanklin. If you're interested in labor and union benefit funds, well, you've landed in the right place. We are a go-to source for all things union benefit fund related, and we are going to bring you interviews with key decision makers and fund professionals that guide these plans. They'll share their insights, experience, unique perspectives the latest developments and tips to unlock the mysteries of multi-employer benefit funds. Time is short, so let's get started.
1: My guest on the podcast today is Larry Williams, Jr. He is the founder of UnionBase.org, the first social media network and education platform for unions and union workers. He is also the co-founder of the Progressive Workers Union, The Progressive Workers Union is a national union for nonprofit employees started at the Sierra Club. Larry currently serves as the labor coordinator and has been in this role since 2017. Hi, Larry. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
1: For someone so young, you have quite an impressive resume. Could you please share a little bit about your gra- background, how you got involved in labor? Did you grow up in a labor family? Did you study law labor in college?
2: Thanks so much for the nice intro and I, that's actually kind of a funny story. You know, I did not necessarily grow up in a typical union home per se, but I did come from a working class family, and I think those values of you know working multiple jobs if you have to, working as many hours as it takes but understanding that you have to create a living for yourself and for your family is something that my mom put deeply into my consciousness. My father passed when I was pretty young, but he was also working class as well. So um, I think in terms of my professional career, I kind of you know stumbled backwards into the labor movement happily. I recently did a TED talk and I tried to squeeze this in and I couldn't, but essentially I worked multiple jobs in college and my classmates would always see me Switching uniforms and running back and forth with books, um, but I was I was basically full time employed with multiple jobs and part time in school. You know, at some point it just became too much, and I was lucky enough to get a temp job working for a union in D.C., one of the most powerful unions in the country. And yeah, from there I just was obsessed. I I learned about organizing. And the tech side of it, the uh, in person side of it, and the history side of it. And from there, I was just obsessed.
1: How did you come to the Sierra Club and become a co founder of the Progressive Workers Union?
2: That's a really long story, but I'll keep it very short. And I'll also say the update is I'm no longer with Sierra Club. Um, I had a really great run there as labor coordinator, but unfortunately, it's time to leave. My mentor at the time, you know, when I was just running Union Base, I had left the union told me that there was an opportunity at Sierra Club to be labor coordinator, which anybody who follows the environmental movement knows just transition is a hot topic right now, right? Which is going to be probably for the next 20 to 50 to 100 years. And so there's a big gap in terms of knowledge of folks who know the labor movement, but also understand the environmental movement and can work to bring the two together. Because there's always been been somewhat of a contentious relationship, but as of late, there's been a lot of power built up between the labor movements and environmental movement. So I was kind of brought in as the labor guy in the environmental movement. And in that, a lot of my coworkers were like, oh, so you come from the union world. You should totally run our staff union. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I don't know, because I know what it takes to run a union. You really have to give your life to it. Um, but there was a lot of organizational problems um, at the Sierra Club that you know, it's a 125-year-old organization. So there's no organization that old that doesn't have some sort of problems in their history. Um, and my co-founder of PWU, uh, Neha Matthew Shaw, she had many years at the organization. So she knew the organization really well, like the back of her hand. And I felt like I knew the labor movement because I had spent so many years dedicated to it. We, we had issues around pay inequality, um, you know, racial and gender pay inequality. Being a nonprofit, there's always an issue around unpaid work time and comp time being tracked. Uh, there was just like, uh, so many issues. It was like three pages long. And I know because this is something I was keeping track of. Right. I come from the traditional labor movement of member driven organizing, instead of being service driven, you're an organizing union. So we built it from the first brick. There was an existing staff union, John Muir Local 100, which was great, but it was, it was named after John Muir, who's the founder of Sierra Club. So that was the first issue because he had a history of racism and eugenicism and everything else. And the union also wasn't quite penetrating into the membership. First thing we did was talk to every single member and say, how's your experience here? And we dug up a lot of stuff that had been under the surface for a long time. So I'll just say that we built the movement. We built a steward program, a labor management committee, and then ultimately a really great bargaining team. And this all led to it was a two, three year process which led to a really historical contract, which is now I think the it's kind of the bedrock of the nonprofit movement now. Everybody tries to build a similar contract and we've been able to expand the new leadership of the union, who's amazing as well, has expanded the union to 350 and all these other environmental nonprofits like Greenpeace and it's really become a, a movement. It's really beautiful to see.
1: Could you give me a definition of what the Progressive Workers Union is? sure or what their mission is?
2: So I think the the current leadership has really tried to keep the core belief that we have of centering um, impacted and vulnerable people in our union. That's the first thing. You know, uh, Black folks, folks of color, um, trans folks, non-gender, binary folks, folks who typically in the workplace, you know, are getting overlooked uh, for promotions and, and job increases are suffering discrimination there's always pay inequality for women. You know, these are things that the labor movement was built on, as I've heard you say before. And we believe that by lifting the folks at the bottom, everybody else benefits. And our union is a textbook example of that. So that's our core mission. And then the other thing is, I think we've kind of just by by the nature of how we're set up as an independent union, we've become this decentralized, um, more swift force where uh, you know, we have these units and these units as they join the local, um, they have their own set of priorities because they're in a different organization. As long as you're able to lift up those who are most vulnerable and you agree with those principles, we'll help you organize, we'll help you bargain. I mean, the new leadership has their own direction, obviously. Right. And that's why I stepped down, because I believe you can't have a labor movement that <laughs> moves into the future if you're not allowing other people to come behind you and build something even better. So those are those are the real basics. We're an organizing union. We believe in building power and also obviously working with employers, right, because you need the employer to be successful for your members to be doing well. So it's not always a contentious relationship, but we definitely believe you have to bring power to the table in order to have a really good conversation.
1: I love that you just pointed out that labor and management are not always contentious. I think that's a really big misbelief in the general public. I think there's a lot of great employers out there that are trying to do what's right and want to work with labor and see the advantages of having the labor union. So I love that you point that out.
2: Absolutely. I mean, Sierra Club really stepped up to the plate. I mean, we wouldn't have gotten that contract if you know, we really struggled for it. It was difficult you know, for an organization to now deal with. Suddenly their employees have not just a voice, but a large voice, a very visible voice. But that's the beauty of it, is that if if management steps up to the plate, then the whole work environment becomes better and mid-level managers are doing better as well. Everybody, I think, has more job security and more clarity and transparency around what to expect and tracking hours. And So we really changed the organization from top to bottom. Um, and that's the benefit of a union.
1: The unified voice in many ways that unions can bring to the table um, on behalf of the workers helps businesses because sometimes they don't know what they don't know, right? They're in one office and the workers are doing their job. But when something is brought to their attention, they can address it. But without that information, they can't do anything about it. And I think it's that unified voice that is a real asset uh, that labor brings to the management side.
2: The first major win we got in terms of expanding our membership was chapter employees, because a lot of folks had been in the field making varying wages and, you know, having varying experiences under the same employer. So we made an agreement with Sierra Club, which was really fantastic. Again, they stepped up to the table and expanded the membership to, you know, folks who are in the chapter. So that was the first group. I believe the second uh, was 350, which was, you know, this is another really well-known environmental nonprofit group. Um, And then, of course, Greenpeace, which is, you know, super well-known. And the list has continued to grow over time. I just think, like, there's so many groups of workers, particularly in nonprofits, who kind of are stuck in what we call the nonprofit industrial complex. And that's because, uh, you know, nonprofits are typically funded by funders. And funders don't necessarily, I think, calculate wanting to pay a fair wage when they're making these funding asks and things like that, right? So some of this I think eventually needs to get to educating funders that you want a unionized workforce because they tend to stay longer. Because they're better paid, they have the ability to stay at the job and they don't have to have multiple jobs. Um, also, they have more skill because they've been there longer and then you avoid the cost of retraining workers every time, you know, these folks who are so low paid have to move on. So there's so many benefits that come with having a unionized workforce that I have had a lot of people, this is actually the the reason why I love the labor movement. So many people have come to me and said, oh, I joined this organization now as my employer because PW represents the workers and I've heard about what you guys are doing. And that's what tells me you know, even beyond PW, the labor movement still has a value proposition and we just need to really execute on that.
1: You're also a founder of the unionbase.org. Could you tell the listeners what union base is, its purpose, why it was founded?
2: I think the original purpose, I was very young at the time. I was in my early twenties. And like I said, I was working for a major union. And, you know, I think I just saw that there was no real Uh, avenue to find out what union is around you or even to find out more about unions. So I kind of took my experience as a young person who believed in civil rights and human rights and women's rights, but didn't know that there was a movement outside of the civil rights movement dedicated to the advancement of those rights within the workplace and beyond. And so upon learning that, you know, my natural instinct, I think most folks want to apply what they know to what they love. So I know technology and I love the labor movement. I used to see folks in my union always look at Union Facts, and then when I realized it was a non-union site, I'm like, "Why are we using this (laughs) non-union site to try to find out?" You know, obviously people look for salaries, but also to find out where locals are. So we created a prototype, and all it did was literally look up, you know, what locals in your area by zip code. And uh, my partner at the time, this guy Lewis Davis, he was working with SCIU. We came up with the second version prototype and kept advancing it. Um, We caught the attention of Lean startup, um, which is typically attributed to you know small startup businesses, but obviously we were one of the rare occasions where this is like worker-centered technology. So I think we caught their interest, and I got really early. Um, they you know had us in one of their big presentations. But the the methodology has been to build something, release it, and then based on the feedback we're getting from unions and workers, we iterate. And we've done that probably a few hundred times. And what happened was people were saying to us, Oh, this is great that you can look for a union, but we really like to be able to look for other union leaders or other workers who are trying to organize. And that's how we came to the point of being somewhat of a social network. And in 2017, you know, we caught the attention of some folks at Fast Company and Forbes and other places and that kind of snowball. But the unfortunate thing about that is that. The title of the article that came out in 2017 that everybody saw millennial trying to save the labor movement, it turned off a lot of people in the labor movement because, A, the word millennial, which, you know, millennials get blamed for everything. So I'll take the I'll take the rap for that. But the other thing was the comparison to Facebook, because Facebook, you know, we all know what Facebook is doing in terms of, you know, selling data and just so many issues there. And we're, we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to create a secure space for workers to talk for unions to talk and for both groups to talk to each other. And it's a real coding challenge. It's a, um, it's a social challenge because you want to meet people where they're at and people tend to meet in Facebook groups and all these very insecure places. And then communication in the labor movement is spread across WhatsApp, Signal, Facebook, email. I mean, there's so many places. A lot of people thought we were just crazy for trying to do this and why would you want to create something new? But I think we were really ahead of our ahead of our time because now, in the, you know, with COVID, people are seeing that you can't always rely on house calls and in person union hall visits to have these conversations. So in some ways, we're still ahead of our time, and I think you know now we're leaning a little bit more towards the education piece because we realize you can build all this great technology, but if people don't know the first thing about a union, then you you have a major issue, right? You can't just jump drop somebody in the pool. You have to really you know, walk before you
1: run. This is a conversation that I've had with many people. So growing up, I grew up in a labor household. My dad was in the labor movement. And, you know, as a kid, people always, so what does your daddy do? And I would say, well, he works for a labor union. Well, what does a labor union worker do? And even as a kid, I would struggle to say, because they would immediately think he was literally like a laborer. So somebody who was building houses. And I would be like, no, he goes to an office. I was speaking to a friend yesterday or the day before yesterday, and we were talking about the labor movement. And he was saying um, that he did a paper when he was in college. And I don't know what the thesis of the paper was, but he said, when you Google or go to the library and research labor that predominantly in the news labor is represented negatively. You know, you've got racketeering and corruption and mob boss, and those are the headlines. It's very hard to find the positive news story, the story of how the union helped someone get their immigration card or the story of how when the fires broke out in California, the union rushed to their members, you know, sides with everything, clothing, food, food, you know, gift cards to go buy stuff, places to live. It is a community of people and those stories rarely get told in the news media. And I think that that's something union base has an opportunity to share in terms of conversational and good stories. So I applaud what you're doing. Some of the greatest accomplishments have big mountains in front of them, so there's nothing wrong with climbing it. So good for you guys, and I, I hope it goes really well, and I hope it continues to grow. And w- one of the things you talked about is how you just keep pivoting and big fan of the whole disruption, strategic disruption. And that is, a, you know, that's a mark of strategic disruption is to just keep taking feedback pivot, taking feedback pivot. So um continue the good work there. Support for unions is at an all-time high. And um according to September 2020 Gallup polls, 65% of Americans surveyed were in favor of labor unions. The 2017 Pew Research study showed that three quarters of those surveyed between the ages of 18 and 29 had a favorable view of labor unions. And according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research, 75% of new members in 2017 were under the age of 35. So one of the Core reasons for asking you to come on the podcast today was to talk about union organizing and millennials. Um, you have, uh, volunteered to wear the millennial hat <laughs> and for all of its good and bad. Um, but what's, what do you think is going on with millennials? I mean, why are they leading this push to organize and in Today in history,
2: I think that the changing expectations of young people is part of this shift. We do everything from our cell phones, we update our friends, uh, some people use the dating apps, you know everything is digitized. that's allowed people to work from a distance. There's the advent of this nomad life, a digital nomad life where people want to live and work from wherever they are. I think that they've had this flexibility to say, "I'm going to work where I want." I can go to any employer I want. It's not even like I was. I, I typically always stay at jobs for five to seven years before I even thought about taking on something else. Whereas you might see a millennial stay at a job for four or five months, if that, and then switch to something else. But at the same time, when you look at the industries that are organizing, so you have journalists, nonprofit employees, you know, you can really go down a list. It's a very long list of uh, industries where the organizing has been growing. It can be web developers, designers, I find that it tends to lean a little bit heavier towards professional class, even though it's not exclusively professional, because Amazon workers just made an effort, right? Um, But I do think that they see themselves in this, related to Bernie Sanders movement of, you know, the 1% being richer than they've ever been, and understanding a little bit more that this is a class struggle, even though they may see themselves as somebody who may one one day be wealthy, they have, I think, a little bit more clarity on the fact that Right now, I I need to do better in my life, and they see the union as a way to do that. The other thing is a lot of the propaganda that came out of that Powell memo, uh, you know, many many years ago, is probably a little bit less effective because we're not consuming the traditional sources of information anymore. I still read the Washington Post and New York Times, uh, not not solely, but those are a good place to start to get you know go out and get other sources. And these kids are watching Young Turks; they're on you know YouTube and like looking at places where you can actually find information that's more relative to you and they're not just consuming strictly corporate information so I think that that opens a lane for not only union base but also for unions to try to go to other places to get your message out that you wouldn't necessarily think of this is the the moment of creating your own base and really marketing to that base this is what people do in, individually on these social networking platforms and unions have a huge base of what 11 million workers in the private sector that we're not activating. Many of them don't even know they're in a union. So if you focus even half of that, three to five million workers on one specific goal, you can do a lot. And I think, you know, that's been my mission since 2015 is trying to figure out how to get us kind of, even though we have some, some differing interests, like you, Solidarity, to start moving the ball together.
1: Yeah, you know, you touch on the, so traditionally union members have always been seen as blue collar workers. You know, when people would ask me what my dad did and not understand as a leader what he was doing in the movement. But blue collar occupations didn't require the college degree, although they did require some special skill training. Um, But you've mentioned how, the union movement is really um, benefiting from this white collar occupations um, from the college faculty members, teachers, nurses, healthcare workers, journalists. I mean, you've just mentioned a bunch of them, nonprofit employees like the Sierra Club. So, these types of jobs that do require some sort of higher education, you even fit the profile, you have a bachelor's degree. Um, in business technology, and um, you're a union member. So, why are college graduates organizing? I mean, why are, has organizing shifted to this white collar occupation? What is the benefit that these white collar jobs see in organizing a union?
2: Well, one slight correction: I actually never finished my bachelor's degree, and I'm I'm not ashamed of that. And I'll tell you why, because the labor movement you know really lifted me into the middle class and for i think this is a lot of people uh you know they have to choose between being able to pay the rent or being able to be in school and it's not a decision that you want to have to make and I, unfortunately um a lot of people aren't able to get the opportunity to join a union and then right so like now if i wanted to basically stop working and go to school full time. I have that choice because of the money that I was able to save having a union job. So I, I think it's important to share a distinction for folks who don't have a who don't have a degree and maybe feel like, oh, I can't do this. You definitely can. If you're 30, 40, 50, you don't have a degree, you can still do it, but you just have to kind of get that solid base. Um but I, I think the <clears throat> that pivot in terms of the type of workers that are joining unions, I, I kind of wonder if that is a little bit attributable to the the intellectual side of it. Because if you're looking at the data, if you're looking at the studies that come out all the time, it's undeniable what unions do for workers. It's pretty clear that in your lifetime, you're going to make more being in the union versus not being in the union. It's pretty clear that if you're a minority, though it's not perfect, uh, generally you have mechanisms to fight back if you're a woman and you're getting underpaid, being in a unionized job versus not. So I think a lot of folks who are in the more educated class they, they sit here and they look at the data and they say, well, this is clear what we want. The other thing is, I think it's a little bit less effective to do that intimidation tactic for people who, if you're a, a group of folks who organize by trade, then you can't tell them that they're wrong for organizing. That just doesn't make any sense. And I have these conversations like, still with so many workers who reach out to union base and they say, hey, we want to organize, but like, what's the first step? They don't even know the first step. And that says something about culturally where we are as a society when even though joining uni is your human right, but there's a lot of fear associated with it and a lot of a lack of information.
1: I have so many thoughts on um, what you just said. The first thing I want to say is the college education thing is um, on a personal note is something that I could get on my high horse about. I mean, it wasn't even an option for me. I was gonna graduate from high school and I was gonna go to college, but not so much for my older siblings. Right. So it was like, are they going to go to college or aren't they? And um, so I I think that there's definitely a shift, and it's something that I have children. And I think often, if my kids want to specialize in a trade, I think that we're not all built to be academics, right? Some of us need to get our hands dirty, and some of us want to have one skill. And in many ways, it's an art form and use it. So I think that we as parents need to remember as our kids are showing us who they are and help them just be, give them the opportunity to go in that direction and remind them that there are options. I mean, when they took shop out of school, they really did many kids a disservice. Absolutely. This has been the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds, and I have been speaking with Larry Williams, Jr., the founder of UnionBase.org and the co-founder of the Progressive Workers Union. This concludes the first half of our conversation, so I hope that you'll join us for the second episode when I'll be speaking with Larry about gig workers, the Amazon vote, and we continue our conversation about millennials, Gen Z, and the future of labor organizing. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to us and leave us a five-star review. You can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pandora, and many of your favorite podcast platforms, or visit us at our website at www.multiemployerfunds.com. That's www.multiemployerfunds.com. Thanks again for joining the conversation where listeners connect with leading experts throughout the multi-employer world. Be part of the change. And that's it for this week's episode of the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast. We love to hear from you. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, head over to www.multiemployerfunds.com and let us know. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to next time.